Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. I think, Kieran, the first thing we have to do is say a big, warm welcome back to producer Guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's back in the country from wherever it was he went to. He was very cagey about where he went. I think he was worried we might follow him. Uh, I don't know why, because wherever he went, we won't be able to afford it. Uh, but it's brilliant that he's back and especially if we, things just don't go right when he's not here and they're not things that he, uh, I, I, uh, when we spoke on the last pod Kieran I just bought some new headphones and all the way through I was thinking I, I love Kieran I really do but my god he's loud I, he's, what's going on I said I can't bear it I'm gonna, I ended up with a headache uh, so I went out and bought some new headphones and then uh, I discovered this morning that the problem was I was trying to turn down the volume on the wrong laptop. Uh, <laughs> I was turning down the volume on the laptop I was reading from and not the laptop that we're recording from. So that's resolved. Uh, if anyone if anyone in the Porson's Arms wants a spare pair of cheap Norbury High Street speak, uh, headphones tomorrow, I think please come up by all means and, <laughs> and ask me. Um, congratulations on your wedding anniversary last week, Kieran. Uh, I forgot to send you uh, love. Ali's very cross to me because obviously being a middle-aged man, it didn't register, despite the fact that, despite the fact I've written it down somewhere to say happy happy wedding anniversary to Kieran. But um, it's questions day, Kieran. Uh, first first question is, I hope you had a lovely wedding anniversary. Uh, I suspect there's a reason why, why not. But we have some news stories, Kieran, big, big news stories. If you're uh, a Man United fan, a Forest fan, or a boozer in the East End, <laughs> Essentially, but uh, not not two pods after you predicted, Kieran, that you 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 thought there was a potential crack in the dam. You thought there was a whisper on the breeze, a hint of a scintilla of a possibility that the Glazers were getting slightly itchy feet. Comes the news that they may be willing to sell uh, a minority stake in the club, and that news is followed by. News that billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, English billionaire, he's at great pains to remind us, may be willing to not only buy a minority stake but to buy the whole club. So these are these are big days for Man U fans, Kieran. How how serious is 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 this a story? Um, I, I think we we have progressed a little bit over the course of the last ten days, but if you monitor the share price of Manchester United. And as you can imagine, before I go to bed every night, that's one of the things I always check up on. Um, the uh, the initial reaction to uh, Elon Musk's claim on Twitter that he was going to buy Manchester United before he rode back and said, oh, it's just a gag. Um, that, that was quite positive. Uh, Jim Ratcliffe throwing his name into the ring, or should I say that this story broke on the day of my wedding anniversary. And uh, I did spend uh, from 7am in the morning till 8pm at night dealing with media <laughs> queries and bits and pieces. Um, to, to which, uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 Bar- the Baroness's uh, response at the end of this, and, and I think I think Prosecco may have been consumed in my absence, uh, was uh, fucking Manchester United, <laughs> fucking Blazers, <laughs> fucking Jim Ratcliffe. <laughs> so I thought, oh, 
better buy a bunch of flowers from the local uh, from the local petrol station to make up from this. Um, not eight thirty in the evening of the day of your wedding anniversary, Kieran. This is you, how many times have I spoken to you about romance? You've got to get a handle on this. <laughs> but yes. this is but this but this is a is this Jim Ratcliffe the same Jim Ratcliffe who, when asked about buying Chelsea, said uh, one way to guarantee losing his money would be to buy a Premier League football club. Yes, yes. I mean, he, he did say that there's a mug out there who's willing to pay two, two and a half billion for a Premier League football club, and I'm not that mug. Now he said this uh, two or three years ago. He he then mysteriously. Uh, threw his hat into the ring in respect of the Chelsea uh, sale. But uh, that that did appear a bit strange because he, he didn't appear to have gone through the, the appropriate processes uh, in terms of communication necessarily with the Rain Group. It was, it was done in public. So you, you felt at the time, is this him now sort of saying, I'm a bit more interested in in Premier League football than I was before. Uh, remember, he, he currently owns Nice in France, and and he's made some fairly interesting structural changes there. Um, he he does have uh, a lot of wealth. He's been independently successful. He's he's a lad from Oldham. He used to stand on the the terraces at Old Trafford when he was a lad. So he so he's clearly got a, an emotional connection there. Um, and and he does have the resources. Um, so so then I think we've got to look at the issue of of price. If if the if the Glazers are willing to sell a minority share, and they've also been linked to the American private equity firm Apollo, um, what's in it for the investor? Because the dividends that are paid by Manchester United aren't huge. They, they, they irritate fans, but mm. it's not actually a significant return on your investment. So you wouldn't be getting money back there uh, as a minority shareholder, especially because what the Glazers have done at Manchester United is that they've split the club into two. And the shares that you can buy on the stock exchange carry one vote each. And the shares which are owned by the Glazers carry 10 votes each. So, so you can't even build up a head of steam and say, well, we've now got a significant number of votes and we're going to challenge the Glazers because they, they keep all of the, the major voting shares. So it's it's very difficult for a minority shareholder to change things uh, you know, at the wheel of the club. Mm. Um could Jim Ratcliffe come in and do the same? Um, he would he would have those same same challenges, and uh, you know he's, he's sixty nine years of age. It would take a few years to turn things around. Yeah, you know, I think we've got to look at a time frame. So I, I think he would only get involved if there was uh, a, a definitive option to to make some form of takeover at a later date. And then we come to the issue of price. Um, Whilst Manchester United shares are currently trading in total at a value of £1.8 billion on the New York Stock Exchange, the, the Glazers aren't going to sell for that. Uh, yeah, they, they would be looking for at least twice that. Then you've got to take over the debt of half a, half a billion. So it, realistically, a price of four to £5 billion would be a ballpark figure. And, and we've seen the Denver Broncos, I think, be sold for around about that recently. So you know, you know, Manchester United is bigger than the Denver Broncos. Um, so he he could do it. Um, the the I'm interested if the club is up for sale comment. Uh, the word if is doing an awful lot of heavy lifting there. Mm. <coughs> Three questions, Kieran. Uh, first of all, 
we talked about selling a minority of shares. What what percentage are they talking about? Do we know that? Secondly, the debt of uh, half a billion, you said, I believe. Yeah. Is that left over from when the Glazers bought the club in the first place? And thirdly, this idea that the splitting the shares into one vote uh, for you and 10 votes for the Glazers, was that done to prevent a hostile takeover or is that standard practice? Right. Uh, I, th- I think those are all valid questions. I mean, if if you were to buy 10% of Manchester United, you would probably be able to do it at, at slightly more than the the current market price. So I, th- I think you could probably pick up 10% of, of the shares on the, on the New York exchange for 180, 200 million pounds. Now, I think we've got to be careful here. When people see shares being traded or somebody buying up a stake, there's there's two potential beneficiaries. The Glazers could sell ten percent of the shares that they own to a minority share to a new minority shareholder such as Apollo. But what they would do is that they would convert their B shares, which carry the ten votes, into A shares, which you only get one vote. So so you wouldn't be picking up those Glazer votes if that was the case. That would be two hundred million that would be going into the pockets of the Glazers. So that's not benefiting the club. Or Manchester United could physically issue shares to the stock market and then the club would uh, be in receipt of that money and the club could invest that in infrastructure in player recruitment and retention in you know in, in a variety of things um so yeah you know, I, th- I think it, you know 10 percent sort of gives us sort of a a, a a a benchmarking figure in respect of your second question it, it, as far as the debt is concerned um yeah, the debt is a hangover from when the the Glazers initially borrowed around about six hundred million pounds in two thousand and five to acquire Manchester United, um, they they have paid out huge sums in in loan interest. I, I estimate, I think it was eight hundred and fifty seven uh, million pounds in total. You know, as we said before, yeah, you know, that's, that's enough for for ten more Harry Maguire's and a Donny Van de Beek uh, to throw <laughs> yeah. in. You know, that, have that as a starting eleven and get, and get past those. Um, so um, the the interest on the debt these days is is much much lower because Manchester United have uh, rescheduled the debt, they've renegotiated the debt. So so the yeah I've I've always said that the, the debt and the interest in in my view is isn't actually a problem. Uh, it, it was more of a problem in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven, and it was down to the skills of Sir Alex Ferguson that Manchester United were still competitive, even though they had that huge anchor uh, lagging behind the club. Um, and in respect of the third question um, and share splits um, in terms of votes, it's quite common in the tech industry. So if you've got uh, a savant, if you've got a a visionary person at the, the head of a company, such as you know, the, the people in charge of Google or Steve Jobs at Apple or, or uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, you know, somebody that has very much taken a, a company from being nowhere to being somewhere and being a market leader, um, then um, it is common to have uh, – the shares organized in such a way because as you're absolutely right that would prevent a hostile takeover it allows the the people who have set up the company to keep control and and if they are the uh if they are the visionaries or they are the ultimately the reason which is driving profits at the business 
the markets accept that. I think the the issue with Manchester United is that it could be argued that the Glazers are not visionaries when it comes to football. They have not uh, they they've not uh, challenged the market. They 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 have not uh, given the club new ideas, um, and so they might see themselves as visionaries. But the fact that Manchester United's share price is still and and the, the share price has gone up by around about a quarter over the course of the last since the start of August. Um, um, it's still trading at, at less than than when the Glazers listed the company on the New York Stock Exchange in 2012. So um, uh, they are taking advantage of something which is more common in US markets than it is in UK markets. And again, that might be one of the reasons why they went to the New York markets in 2012, but it's not universal. I think if you want proof, Kieran, that they're not visionaries, uh, this is a club, and this is the problem for all Man United fans. This is a club that allowed one manager to buy Aaron Wan-Bissaka from Palace for close to £50 million. Mm. And then the next manager comes in and doesn't fancy him, and they're willing, apparently, to sell him back to Palace for £10 million, a £40 million hit. And so uh, the last question on this is, is I'm interested in the timing of this announcement, Kieran, because much as... Many Man United fans were gleeful at the news that they were willing to share a minority, sell a minority share. This doesn't seem to me anything that's going to change the situation at all. If, if somebody is just buying 10% of their shares or 10% of the club, it, that's nowhere near enough to change the structure of the club, is it? Mm. We all know, everybody looking from the outside knows that it's, it needs a root and branch change and that's going to take two, three, four seasons. So... I, a, I can't see what's in it for somebody who is buying the 10% of the shares from how you describe it. And B, I just wonder whether the timing of this is, is a desperate PR attempt by the Glazers to say, yeah, we are listening to, to what you have to say and we're looking for investment. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, we, this isn't a football show, but let, let's just focus on on the numbers and where Manchester United are. And remember, 15 months ago, Manchester United were the runners-up in the Premier yeah, League yeah, yeah. and they reached the Europa League final. So things aren't terrible there. You know, I think me and you, as Brighton and Palace fans, we'd have said that was an OK season. We'd yeah. accept that. Um, and we'd, I think we'd have been quite Kieran, happy with six. We'd still be on the open-top bus, Kieran, if that happened to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... so if we, if we take a look at the major stakeholders in, in terms of performance at at the club, uh, in terms of the players, Manchester United, and, and I've been through the numbers here, Manchester United have spent the same amount of money as Chelsea and Manchester City, and they've mm. spent considerably more money than Liverpool since Sir Alex Ferguson retired. So investment in the transfer market on a quantitative basis has been there. Let's then take a look at wages. Since 2013, Manchester United have paid out more in wages than Manchester City, than Chelsea, than Liverpool. And all of those clubs have had to pay out substantial win bonuses for winning big trophies. Manchester United haven't. And this isn't this isn't a, a snide dig at, at Manchester United. Yeah, that that's just fact. So the fact that Manchester United have spent out paid out more in wages is indicative that again, the wage budget is there. So player investment on a quantitative basis has been made. Could it therefore be that the problem is the manager? Well, we've had Moyes, Van Gaal, Marino, Solskjaer. We've had Ranić. We've got the new guy in. We've had a couple of uh, interim managers as well. So 
they can't all be duffers. Mm. So, therefore, if it's not the players and it's not the coach, you've then got to say, well, there must be something else that's not working at that football club. Could it be that it's the people at the top who set the culture of the club? Is it too much of an old boys network? Is it being too much run from a commercial vein? From you know, we've got two two accountants as chief executives who are who are not naturally football people. Could that be the issue? Whereas, if you take a look at, uh, at what Liverpool have done, if you take a look at what Manchester City have done, and I think it's fair to say they've been the two most successful clubs since Sir Alex uh, retired. Um, Manchester City's senior management structure is football people. It's the same with Liverpool. You know, mm. they, they they've got very close relationship. Manchester United. Um, and and this this is not me trying to be down with the kids and groovy. Uh, I would describe Manchester United's management as being analog management in a digital world. They are behind the curve, and unless you addressed what's happening at the boardroom and who's appointing people at the boardroom, it goes back to the Glazers family. It's a responsibility issue. The problem is not the money spent. It's not the the, the managers or coaches. It's elsewhere. Now, a lot of people, Kieran, uh, mainly Derby County fans, I have to say, um, <laughs> have been asking about Nottingham Forest. Forest, uh, are, as they're perfectly entitled to do, are throwing a lot of money at the problem of staying in the Premier League, a lot of mm. money. Uh, Morgan mm. Gibbs-White was the latest signing at anywhere between 25 and $40 million, depending on which media company you believe. It's possible that since we record this, they've signed more. So a lot of people are saying, A, where are Forrest getting the money from? And B, why aren't they in danger of flouting FFP regulations? Right. Um, where, where are they getting the money from? It's it's from two sources. First of all, the, the club owner, who is a Greek shipping magnet, has been very generous. Nottingham Forest have lost a lot of money whilst being in the championship. Um, and he has been very generous. He's underwritten those losses. When the club was promoted, um, they had quite a few players out of contract and they also had quite a few loan players last season. So, that, so they actually, when they were promoted via the playoffs, they, they were undercooked. They did not have a big enough squad. So that there was room on the wage budget to substantially increase that. So I think that that's they've been able to to pick up the slack because players have returned to host clubs and so on, and quite a few players' contracts have been uh, have 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 been terminated and, and those contracts have not been renewed. So there was quite a bit of slack. Um, secondly, when we take a look at uh, player recruitment from from an FFP purpose, from from a financial purpose, you look at the total cost of employing a player over the course of the season. And that consists of two things. First of all, it's the player's wages. And secondly, it's the amortisation fee. So some people are sort of screaming, you know, why has Jesse Lingard signed a one-year contract uh, at West Ham, sorry, at, at Forest, not West Ham, of course, um, for more than 100 grand a week? Well, if, if, he's, if he's on 120 grand a week, that's a total cost to Nottingham Forest for the year of six million. Now they've not had to go and pay a transfer fee. So mm. six million for a total cost is actually pretty low because if you sign a player on, uh, you know, say for thirty million pounds on a four-year contract, you've instantly got an amortisation cost of seven and a half million, and that's before you pay him a dime in wages. So I, I think the 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 investment has been an interesting one. And then I, I went into. The, the records, and I've taken a look at 
um, other clubs who have been promoted in recent years. If you take a look at Leeds, they spent nearly $100 million in their first year following uh, promotion. If we take a look at uh, Aston Villa, uh, when they were promoted, they spent over $100 million. Fulham famously spent yeah. over $100 million and were relegated. Mm. So what we're seeing with Forrest is not unique. I think what Forrest have done is that they've spread the cost of those purchases over a much wider range of players. I mean, you know, most of them were were you know in that sort of seven to fifteen million pound bracket, but there was many of them until until as you rightly pointed out the Morgan Gibbs White deal, which has come through. But again, from from what I've read. It's twenty-five million pounds plus up to seventeen million of add-ons, and I think some of those add-ons are quite challenging to achieve. So, if he's on a five-year deal, your amortization cost, to which you are committed, is five million pounds a year. Um, so, yes, they have spent money. They've not necessarily spent a lot more money than uh, some of their peer group who've been promoted in recent years. And if they are successful in retaining their Premier League status, that money will deem to have been well spent. It's interesting that, Kieran, those comparisons you make with Fulham, Leeds, Villa, because for some reason, I don't know why, it it just seemed like Forest have spent a lot more money than than other clubs. But obviously, that's why we're here, is to actually contradict pub talk and say, no, they haven't. I I certainly want to know people's kind of eyebrow-raising amounts thinking they were spent, but it's it's entirely up to them. And you hope and you assume as well that they would have been savvy enough with the contracts that if the worst does happen and they go down again, they're not landed with a huge, huge wage bill back in the championship. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And looking at the players that they have recruited – yeah, many of those players will not have been in position to, to say no to relegation clauses. Re- relegation clauses are, are far more common than, than people realise um, these days because even with parachute payments, um, the average reduction in the wage bill of a club being relegated from the Premier League to the Championship is 40%. And yes, you will have got rid of some of your high earners potentially and sold those players, but a lot of that is to do with... Uh, with reductions in wages, which are automatic kick-ins. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to Notion.com slash Price of Football. That's all lowercase letters, Notion.com slash Price of Football, and start turning ideas into action. That's Notion.com slash Price of Football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, 
or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is the show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Now, Kieran, I'm aware it's questions day and we're already 23 minutes in, but I do want to cover this last news story, which to people outside London will probably pander to a lot of stereotypes, but the beer prices at West Ham, Kieran, you've been involved in this, which is very uh, magnanimous of you, considering you don't drink it, but it has caused a, a bit of an issue, and rightly so, this week. Yes, um, there was a lot of dissent uh, at uh, at the London Stadium when West Ham had their first match of the season. Um, I, I believe a uh, uh, cheapest pint of beer was £6.80. Um, now, I'm you know, I'm not a beer drinker, uh, but, but I do I do drink water, um, and uh, you know charging charging two pounds eighty five for a drink of water is is frankly ridiculous as well, uh, especially given given the weather. And uh, yeah, we've we've discussed the issue of fans not being able to bring water into uh, into matches, even though we're having record temperatures at present. You know, in the middle of a heatwave, so so it does seem. Uh, it does seem quite ridiculous. Um, this is uh, this is not a criticism of the club itself. The club is a tenant. The prices are so, are determined by the landlord. So uh, West Ham fans can be upset. Away fans can be upset. Uh, I think to be fair, there is now sort of uh, an awareness that uh, West Ham are, are not willing participants in this. They have taken the issue up. With the club, uh, so with with the landlords, who who then magnanimously dropped the pri- the price of a pint by twenty pence, whilst at the same time putting up the price of a soft drink, yeah. uh, you know, to, a, a a bog standard bottle of Coke, well, so, you know, should not cost you more than four pounds. Yeah, the, the, these mm. prices are ridiculous. Um, it is uh, one of the abuses of having a captive market. We, we don't go to football to drink. Yeah, we go to football and we have a drink because we're there for for three hours, and uh, you know you you want some, uh, you know, you want you want some catering whilst you're there. So um, this is an ongoing issue now, I believe, between the club and the landlord. Um, I think the contract between the two parties says that uh, the the prices being charged will be broadly in line with the average of the three other biggest clubs in London, who you would presumably, this is in terms of uh, stadium size. I know you're a Palace fan and you'll say, well, hold on. Um, This is going to be Chelsea, Arsenal and Spurs. But when you actually do those sums, the the sums, the the amounts being charged at the London stadium are excessive. Further evidence of, uh, you know, we are being taken for for granted as fans. And I know people will say, well, hold on. You know, if if I go to, if, if I go to a gig these days, um, you know, at a big stadium, I'll get ripped off. Yeah, you you, you will get ripped off, um, and that doesn't make two two wrongs don't make a right. But you're not going there twenty times a year to watch, you know, to watch to watch those concerts. Yeah, if, if this is going to be a repeat fleece uh, of football fans, this this is uh, this is pretty underwhelming by uh, by the landlord. Well, certainly, if I was West Ham, I would cancel the contract uh, immediately because they spelt confectionery wrong, mm. which is really annoying. Um, 
you remember when you and I and Guy, we did our live show at Accrington uh, and I bought two pints of lager uh, yes. at the bar and the very nice young lady serving said, that'll be £4.80. And I went, no, sorry, love, I wanted two pints. <laughs> and she said, that is for two pints and don't call me love, which is it's like, <laughs> we, 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 we know that London prices are more expensive, Kieran, but what this indicates to me, it, it's a complete contempt for the football fan. Every... Every Premier League club, and I know West Ham are doing this, Palace are doing it, they're asking fans to turn up earlier and earlier. They're, they're, mm. they're introducing uh, electronic ticket systems. Uh, the scale of security searches have been stepped up following the incidents with flares last season and following the disgraceful behaviour at the men's Euros. So they can't, on the one hand, say to you, please turn up an hour, an hour and a half early to the game. And then when they get you in there, charge you... £2.50 more for a pint than you would be paying in the pub that you would normally stay in. It's it, it, They just don't. And it just seems to me that, and again, we know it's not West Ham, but other clubs do the same thing. It just seems mm. to me this assumption, well, they can afford 30 quid for a ticket, they can afford £6 for a beer. And it's it's the thin end of the wedge. And it's just a, yet another example of how the most important people in football are being treated shabbily. And it's something we will keep an eye on. No, questions, Kieran. <clears throat> Yes. I thought this was going to be a short pod, but it's uh, turned out <laughs> not to be so. But we have some good questions. And the first one comes from Phil Chater. Uh, and Phil says, Premier League teams have to submit squad lists at the beginning of the season. And then again for the second half of the season. Do players who don't make the squad for the second half of the season still get things like win bonuses achieved by the team? And is this type of system used in other leagues, uh, Germany or Italy, for example? Right, so, so there's two questions there from Phil. Uh, if we deal with them one by one, um, as far as the player's contract is concerned, um, regardless of whether they are in the, the 25 name squad, uh, they, they would be entitled to, to all contractual bonuses. Because if that wasn't the case, what you could have is, is a chief executive or an owner uh, perhaps putting a bit of pressure uh, on uh, on on the manager to say, well, well yeah, we, we don't want player X in because if we win, if we get into Europe, if we finish more than fourteenth this season, he's on an extra you know five hundred k. So yeah, he's 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 a take it or leave it player. We'd rather you leave him. Um, so so the players would be protected as as far as this is concerned. Now, clearly, there are other bonuses such as appearance bonuses which they wouldn't be entitled to. Um, and in respect of the, the second part of the question, um, the, the reason why we have two squad lists, this, this is determined by, by two factors. First of all, uh, it, it coincides with the transfer window. So, so there will be changes uh, and, and you, you effectively name your, your squad as such when the transfer window closes. And, and the second element of this is that there are restrictions on the number of foreign players uh, in, in many of the leagues. So it's not just the Premier League where you have to have ex-homegrown players. That That's pretty universal in the, in the major leagues in European football. So therefore, when it gets to the 31st of August, when it gets to the 31st of January, you then have to say, right, well, we've got, in theory, we've got 32 players that we can choose from, but we've got to make sure we've got at least 
15 homegrown players or however many homegrown players this is going to be, and it varies from country to country. And and that's when both you know, the Bundesliga, La Liga, Ligue 1, La, you know, Serie A, um, all of those will have to submit to the the uh, administrative authorities um, their list of players because it could be that uh, you know, that they might have exceeded their, their foreign player limit. Uh, your impeccable French accent, Kieran, uh, reminds me that we were discussing the fact that a French football magazine described you as the derriere of yes. the price of football. Uh, we were informed by several French speakers that the actual full, uh, the you were the brains behind. So you weren't the the bottom of the POF. You were the brains behind, which is is nice, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Callum Roper. With, with, the, with the emphasis on the behind, I guess. Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, Callum Roper, also your use of the word plop-plops went down very well with uh, <laughs> uh, the, the very few listeners that we have who grew up with nannies. Um, <laughs> Callum Roper says, earlier this year, Lincoln's planning committee approved a new housing development in the city that will bring houses, shops, leisure facilities, and a new proposed stadium for Lincoln City. Uh, one of the arguments for a modern facility for a club like Lincoln is additional revenue and facilities it can provide for the club's important community work. Obviously, leaving Central Bank will be a big shift for the fans, but looking at similar-sized clubs that have completed such a move in the last few decades, would the club see a significant financial benefit as many proponents of the move are suggesting? Right. Th- this is uh, this is an intriguing one. Um, the, the LNER Stadium, as it is, Presently known, or Central Bank, uh, yeah. probably to, to to most fans, uh, it has a capacity, and I think the capacity has been it been increased uh, a, a wee bit over the summer of around about eleven thousand. So I think the first thing that a new stadium could bring would be increased capacity and uh, a a, de- a change in in the breakdown of of what can be offered by the club uh, in terms of boxes and facilities for for premium price uh, payers, and you know. Yeah, we, we've just spoken about we, you and I. We are both from South London, working class families. Uh, yeah, we 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 have that 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 lifelong appreciation of a pound. You know, the, 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 you know everything has to be earned. Um, the, the the corporate spenders are, are far, far more relaxed. Yeah, they're willing to pay higher prices. Um, so so that's always one opportunity. Um, it's things like having more modern concourses. Uh, we've just been talking about you know, every extra 10 minutes that you spend inside a football ground is a 10-minute spending opportunity. But you can't do that if the concourses are really narrow, if, if they are, if they are, uh, if they were you know, designed for a different generation with, with different different spending habits. So that's something that could be built in. So, so the, all of these are, are revenue generative. The, the downside is that there's an emotional attachment to a stadium. Um, but but if, you, if you talk to fans, um, you know, do Derby fans hanker after the baseball ground? Do, do, do I hanker after the, the Goldstone? You, know, you, you said yourself about Selhurst Park, it's, it's a shithole, but it's our shithole. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't – Prefer to be in a, in, a, in a stadium where you had a bit more room, where you're standing or sitting, where where you've actually got better facilities. You know, my, my experience as a fan from moving one to another, yeah, I, I've got great memories of the old place. But actually, when we have a discussion down the pub, we do actually openly admit that it was 
pretty Victorian in, in, in many respects of dreadful. what was being offered to us. Dread, dreadful place. Dreadful, horrible place. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the question from Callum, though, is it possible to quantify that there would there would always be a financial benefit for a club that moves to a new ground? Um, under nearly all circumstances, that would be the case. Right. Although uh, Darlington got it spectacularly wrong, didn't they? They had George Reynolds, the, yeah. the former safe breaker, um, and he... Uh, he uh, moved them from from the old stadium to the uh, the Reynolds Bowl, which I think was twenty five thousand capacity, yeah, yeah. which wasn't really uh, in line with uh, the the catchment area. Um, and things started to go wrong because if you can't fill that new stadium and you've still got all of the costs of moving, um, that, then that's a downside. In in respect of Lincoln, by the way. I have been in contact with the club with regard to this. Yeah, we are on we are on really good terms here, and you know they they pointed out. Let, let's just show a lot of caution here. This this is part of a much broader development uh, in Lincoln uh, because there have been a lot of objections, not necessarily to the stadium, but to the to to the uh, the redevelopment of a particular area. Some people say, well, it's it's potentially on on a you know, area which could easily be flooded, um, and. From from Lincoln's point of view, um, I think they are phase four of the development. So we're talking oh, okay. a minimum of ten years, perhaps twenty years away. And you know, from the people I've spoken to at the club, they would say, "Well, well, you know, what we don't want to do is to end up in a similar position as as West Ham, where we are the tenants uh, who are in a fairly subservient position in terms of you know, we don't get any of the money from from catering and so on." So so Lincoln have said. We are willing to do it, but it's got to be on our terms. So either we would be owners of the new stadium, or if we were tenants, we would be master tenants, and therefore all revenues generated from it would be under our control. Um, and I think that's a much better position because that gives you an incentive to uh, you know use it for hospitality, to use it for conferencing, to to have better catering facilities because you benefit from it. Mm. Um, so, so that's that's the position there. So, I think I think it's a much more progressive approach which is being taken by Lincoln than what we've seen. Uh, you know, where clubs have suffered. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about Coventry and West Ham uh, in, in the last few podcasts. Uh, David Bateson has a question about Newcastle United and how they will fund their sizable cash outflows over the next few years. David says, although I don't know Amanda Staveley's wealth or liquid asset position, I assume that whatever she has is incomparable to the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. So how will the spending be sorted out from an accounting point of view? Right. Uh, I mean, there's two issues here. First of all, we've we've got the the FFP issues, which, which put uh, an, an ultimate ceiling on what can be spent. Um, what we have seen at Newcastle, which is interesting, is that uh, the, the, the shareholding is split 80% PIF, 10% Amanda Staveley, and 10% the Rubin brothers. Um, so if uh, if you wanted to keep that, and, and there's lots and lots of shares being issued. Uh, so if you were to issue shares for £1 each, and Saudi Arabia wanted to put in £100 million, They'd have to buy a hundred million shares, um, and if Amanda Staveley wanted to to keep her ten percent, she'd have to put in one eighth of that because she's currently got ten eightieths of their investment. So she'd have to find twelve and a half million. 
what's been intriguing as far as Newcastle is concerned was that in January they issued one share. So that's not going to increase uh, the the PIF's investment on a on a percentage basis. They issued one new share for forty million pounds. So I think this is the the vehicle that will be used. Um, and uh, it will be uh, issues of small number of shares at huge prices, and those those issues will be most likely to uh, the PIF, and that way we keep the 80-10-10 split. The, the PIF are not looking necessarily for a financial return on this. You know, they're looking for the same type of return, an emotional return on the investment, uh, you know, an increasing awareness of, of their investment uh, on a much broader sphere. Well, if you enjoyed answering that question, Kieran, I know that you are going to enjoy answering the next question because uh, it, it took me a couple of goes. You want to make a cup of tea now, aren't you? <laughs> uh, it comes from Christopher Tracy, uh, who was incidentally the first presenter of Blue Peter, so mm-hmm. unlikely to be from him. Uh, but Christopher Tracy says, I have been studying for my Chartered Institute of Management Accountants exams basically to get myself out of teaching. And no. I, have a, I have a question about the classification of short-term contracts in the annual accounts. <laughs> uh-huh. A current asset is an asset that is only expected to be used to generate revenue within the current accounting period, and current assets cannot be intangible. So how are short-term contracts, like Christian Eriksson's recent contract at Brentford, accounted for? His registration w- was an intangible asset, but one that was not expected to bring benefit for more than one year. Right. Um, whilst Kevin puts the kettle on, um, and, 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 and Finley just walked in, just walked in. He's just walked out. <laughs> of course he has. He heard me answering that question. Asking that question. Um, the- <laughs> He's not happy. He's I'll not happy. With- was, uh, yeah, that was you, was it? <laughs> that was it. That was. <laughs> that was the dog. Yes. That was Finley. Okay. Um, the issue here is that a, a, we, we often talk about players' contracts as intangible assets. You pay compensation for that to, to purchase that contract and to have exclusive use of it over a period of years. Um, in the case of somebody like Christian Eriksson, they didn't pay any compensation, so so there was no fee. So therefore, there's no there's no numbers to put in. Um, even if you sign a player on a one-year contract, all that you will do is you will, you will treat it in exactly the way that you treat a loan signing, which is normally for a year. And you say, well, yeah, we, we've agreed to pay. Yeah, when uh, I remember when Tammy Abraham went to Swansea uh, on loan for a year, I think uh, I think Chelsea charged them a one million pound loan fee. They, I think they're charging uh, Milan nine million pound loan fee for one year for Lukaku. And all they just say, well, we're just going to treat it as an expense in exactly the same way as we treat rent or insurance or or, or uh, uh, you know other day to day costs. Okay, and, uh, and that's it. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, I, I, I thought you were taking a deep breath before launching into part two of that answer, but that's uh, very succinct, uh, Christopher. I hope, <clears throat> I hope you're writing that down, and good luck with the exams. Rob Spillane says this might be a long stretch and a little bit too difficult to work out. I think he's uh, challenging you there, Kieran. 
<laughs> this this might be the time for a little mic drop at the end of this when you answer this question. Um, but it it says it might be it turn out to be nothing as well, but that's the sort of question I like. Kieran says there's nothing wrong with debt as long as it's serviceable. However, with the huge Chinese company Evergrande struggling at the moment and having already closed their Chinese football team, do you know if they have other links to any more clubs around the world or in the UK that might end up struggling if the company goes under? Obviously, this would have far-reaching consequences. I imagine there are a lot of other companies with a financial interest in them, and I wonder if it reaches football. Um, well, the thing here, Rob, is that there's nothing to worry about. Uh, as far as we can make out, uh, Evergrande have no connections with uh, with English football. I think the major investment, uh, as far as uh, the, the Asian markets are concerned, from China uh, in, in, in English football, is, is with Fosun and uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, I think in an ideal world, I think Fosun uh, would, would like to, to reconsider their, their relationship with Wolves. Uh, uh, they they uh, are uh, aware of the, the change in philosophy that we've had from the Chinese government in the sense that it no longer sees football as a, as a particularly desirable industry in, with, 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 with which it wants to be connected. So... Um, I think we can be relatively relaxed. Uh, you know, you know it, I don't want any company to go bust anywhere because it's people's livelihoods and jobs that that suffer, um, as, and creditors as well. But uh, in relation to Evergrande, I think the the uh, the UK markets are actually quite uh, in quite a strong position. Our final question comes from Jude McCarthy. Uh, Jude says, I've been wondering which manager has made the most money through compensation payments for being dismissed. Would it be a high-profile manager with just two or three evictions, like Mourinho, or somebody such as Steve Bruce, who's had the chop on numerous occasions? Um, well, it, it is very much here, uh, Mourinho, who has had more evictions than, than perhaps uh, you might be familiar, Jude, because remember, he's been sacked by Chelsea twice, that cost the club thirty point five million pounds. Wow. Real Madrid seventeen million, uh, Manchester United fifteen million, and Spurs thirty million. So you put those together, and I think that comes to ninety three and a half million pounds in compensation. So if, if producer guy wants to get rid of us and <laughs> and replace us with uh, with with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, and Tracy Beaker. Um, then, then we're we're willing to listen. I would suspect. Um, in, in respect of Steve Bruce, uh, I, I know that there are, uh, there are people that aren't necessarily part of his fan club, and, and I can understand why. But uh, remember, when he went from Sheffield Wednesday to Newcastle, uh, Newcastle paid Sheffield Wednesday four million pounds mm. in compensation. So that actually worked in reverse. Mm. Sorry, it's it's Steve Bruce. It's fine. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I I thought I thought yeah. there was a yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was tempted to sing the Steve Bruce song, but uh, guy would cut it out anyway. And it's, <laughs> it's 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 not big and it's not clever. It's fun, but it's not big. <laughs> and it's not clever. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via <coughs> excuse me. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via that was a Steve Bruce Bile that was coming up there. I've had to send that back. Hang on, let me swallow the Steve Bruce Bile. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, go to patreon.com slash price of football. That'd be very kind of you. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we'd leave you 
with a small bit of news. We we are taking a an end of season break, but fear not, we we're not leaving you. Um, so our next pod won't be a news one as normally. It'll be another questions pod, and then we'll have another questions pod, and then we'll have a third questions pod, and then we'll be back to normal. So we thought that the last two weeks of the transfer window would be an ideal time for a football finance pod to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> Discussions were had. So, yes, but so we, we, we will be with you uh, in spirit and also on air. So but just to let you know, so you're not confused at the next pod, we'll explain it as we go along. It's a little bit like Christmas, but more spread out. Uh, now I've mentioned Christmas now. I'm really, I really want it to be Christmas. In the meantime, I shall hand you over, of course, to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, as always, folks, thank you very much for the support for the show, uh, whether you use Patreon uh, uh, or other vehicles. And apologies to our Patreon people. Uh, Patreon have started charging VAT, by all accounts, um, and, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not delighted about it either because uh, I, uh, I, I use Patreon for some of the podcasts that I listen to. Um, but th- there's other ways that you can show a, a bit of love for the show, um, and that's that's going on to those apps which you use to, to download. It only takes you, you know, five, ten seconds. And if you can give us a five-star review, uh, it helps us in the charts by all accounts. Uh, you, you don't have to write anything at all, but if you, if you choose to write something, it has no impact whatsoever uh, on the charts or on the algorithms that are used by Apple and Spotify. So so you could, you could say uh, you would rather have the show presented by Jean-Claude Van Damme and Bez from The Happy Mondays. I I think there'd be a lot of rhythm to that show, and and I'd quite enjoy it. I've I've not met Jean-Claude Van Damme. I I have met Bez. He's absolutely charming, but he moves about a lot. (laughs) Sometimes you you look at him and you think, he's he's seeing imaginary maracas. (laughs) He literally dances to him. Do you want a cup of tea, Bez? Just, yeah, all right. You're going to have to stand still to hold that cup of tea, Bez. Um, Are you you a patron of this pod, Kieran? Uh, No. No, oh, okay. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to be show show disloyalty, but uh, I'm, no, I, 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 was, I was just worried because I thought, oh, if Kieran's a patron, I'm, I'm going to have to stump up a pound a week, plus plus VAT a month, a month. Oh, a pound a month plus VAT. I could claim that VAT back though, couldn't I? Yes, could I? you probably could. Yeah, well, that would please Bobby Numbers. If I, what's what's that? What's this twenty p a month you're claiming back? <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm for the